All right, Sean. So we're live now. Uh, thanks so much for uh, agreeing to chat with me. Yeah, thanks for thanks for having me on the show, Justin. Yeah, totally. Um, I think if I recall correctly, the uh, I, I, the way that we first came into each other is I came across your blog post on uh, the history of Catholic anti-capitalism. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, yeah, and then I was kind of looking through some of your other stuff, and I was like, huh, I'd be interested to chat with this person. Also, I saw that you do your own podcast, so whenever I see that, I'm kind of like, okay, this is per- this person's probably down to chat, you know? <laughs> right, right, yeah. I, I kind of feel like, uh, you know, the, the podcasting community, we've got we've to support one another. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we could actually just talk about that for a little bit real quick because um, I, I was looking through your, yours today, preparing for this chat, and I noticed you folks are really consistent. I, I, I'm not never able to find enough time to really have like a consistent, uh, regular schedule. I just kind of do it when I have the time and I right. feel like doing it. But I noticed you guys are super consistent, so that's pretty cool. Is that hard for you to do? I mean, especially like managing your other responsibilities. Uh, I wouldn't say it's it's easy, but it, it's not it's not too too difficult. I mean, I, I guess um, unlike your show, if if um, my understanding is correctly, mm-hmm. uh, it, it, it usually most weeks it's just me and Paul. Paul's my my co-host, um, and so we don't have to organize around guest schedules. Um, so I guess that makes things easier. But um, right, but yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's one more thing uh, to squeeze in, and you know, we do have a, a Patreon set up, but we're we're just beginning to get. Um, some some donors uh so it's one more thing that you know i have to do and it's one more thing uh that i don't get either paid at all or paid much for um so yeah it's sometimes hard to justify but it's fun you know paul and i have been friends for a really long time and uh ultimately it's a it's like a good structured reason to talk to to one of my closest friends so i'll take that yeah, that's awesome. So actually, while we're talking about it, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about the podcast? Because I, I was able to listen to a few of them, but not in too much depth. Um, I'd like to just, you know, not able to find the time. Uh, so I noticed that it's basically the one of the things you're trying to do with it is um, kind of unite or not necessarily unite, but at least bring together in conversation uh, kind of different ideological perspectives. And so that's something that kind of uh, it's, it's not so purposeful exactly with with my podcast, but that's definitely something that my podcast is kind of uh, that that's become a part of this uh, one way or another. So uh, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about your podcast and what you're kind of how you do it, and you know who the person is you do it with, uh, how you know them, and uh, is it someone that you that lives near you? I guess so. You do it in person, or you do you do it online, or just give us the rundown. No, we, we, yeah, sure. Um, so the the show's called In Politic. Um, it's uh, it's hosted by myself and uh, my friend Paul Matsko. Uh, we both went to grad school together. We both did history PhDs at uh, at Penn State. Um, and uh, the the concept of the show is weekly conversations between a libertarian and a socialist. So I'm the socialist. Paul's the libertarian. Um, and we 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 did this for a couple different reasons. Um, I mean, started doing the show. One was that you know Paul and I were were good friends in grad school, but then we both moved, and we were kind of bummed that we didn't get a chance to talk uh, as frequently as, as we would like. And so we kind of felt like uh, you know structuring those conversations uh, around a weekly obligation would would put us in contact more consistently. Nice. Um, you know, so that was kind of like the the you know the personal reason for doing it, and I think in a lot of ways that's been kind of the the biggest payoff for the show thus far. It's just it's been nice to like reconnect with a friend, um, you know, even though we've we both moved. Um, 
but it was also um, kind of this this post uh, 2016 election thing. Um, I don't think that we were thinking that you know neither of us are like big believers that uh, we need to find some sort of magical moderate solution and that we do that by having conversations across the ideological spectrum. Right. Like I want I want to win and take power, and so does Paul. But I I think. Um, I think we both also felt that like we were better at our respective positions because of our history of political argument hmm. um, than we would have been without them, right? So like I think I'm a better socialist because I regularly argue with a libertarian, and I think Paul feels kind of similarly about his chops as as a, as a libertarian. So um, that, I guess that was kind of like um, our our philosophy, uh, as as it were, that um, we thought that uh, you know too much of the focus on like partisanship was on this idea that there's uh, a magical moderate position that will emerge from conversations. And we, we just sort of felt like the real casualty of hyper-partisanship is that people don't get smarter and they don't get better at their positions because they don't talk anymore. Okay. Um, yeah. yeah. So that's basically the show. Okay. That's fascinating. Yeah. I totally see that rationale. You're not really interested in, yeah, some sort of like common ground that you think exists between different perspectives, but you're interested in keeping yourself sharp. Right. And, you know, there, there are places where we, we find common ground, um, right. you know, uh, but that's not really our goal, I think, in, in general. Yeah, okay, that's really interesting. Also, I find interesting that um, perhaps a lesson from your podcast that maybe I need to think about is uh, find someone to do podcasts with me on a regular basis instead of it being based on guests all the time, which I have to go out and find. Maybe I just find someone who I love talking with who will agree to do it with me, like at least maybe once a month or something. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's, that, that, I kind of feel like that's the best way to ensure the consistency, but I mean, I really like um, what you're doing with your show. I mean, I, I, I like the, you know, the fact that it's like very different conversations with very different people from week to week. Um, you know, whereas Paul and I, like we try to change it up as much as possible, but ultimately we only have, uh, you know, our, our interests are, are finite and, you know, a lot of times we, we wind up coming back to kind of similar themes on a, on a regular basis. So uh, th- th- there, there's, there's a lot to be said about, um, having a different guest for each specific episode. So, right. Do you, have, do you guys ever have guests? Yeah, we actually just recently had our, our, um, first guest. It was, a uh, it was actually, uh, a former grad school colleague of ours named, uh, Bill Cosson. And, uh, Bill's, um, an expert on 19th century Catholicism. And it was actually Bill who, um, gave me a lot of the info that I used in the, uh, the Catholic anti-capitalism post that, that you mentioned earlier. Like, I, I really know very little about, uh, Catholicism, period. Hmm. Uh, and so I was just kind of interested in, in like the, the the anti-capitalist dimension of it and it, i think it was in the context of like um pope francis had said something critical of capitalism and a lot of folks were like wow the catholic church has never been critical of capitalism before and that sort of that sort of struck me as being likely incorrect and bill right. helped me flesh out a lot of the points so we had bill on recently um and one of the things that w- was most interesting was just the realization that that like the technical side of handling three audio feeds is um, it's a lot more complicated than handling two audio feeds. So, um, yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> the more people you get on a podcast, the more complicated it becomes. Yeah, definitely. I've had some pretty bad little technical snags, even just having one guest at a time. This was <laughs> it only it only took me five minutes to get this set up correctly. So I've had some bad ones. Yeah, it's it's it gets tough. Uh, so why don't you tell me a little bit more about? Uh, that piece in particular, we could talk about a bunch of things, but you said that you actually are not, you don't know that much about, um, 
Catholicism, uh, but I know that you're kind of more, uh, you're sort of a socialist or anti-capitalist, or you can tell me however you, you know, think about your own beliefs. So then how did you get into, why was that something that interested you, the Catholicism piece, or maybe you could tell us kind of what the main upshot of that uh, little bit of research you were doing was? Yeah, I mean, it was it, little is the operative word. Yeah. Um, it was. I, I think I wrote it during uh, my first year out of out of grad school, and uh, I was really like basically just trying to throw a bunch of spaghetti against the wall and 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 see what what stuck professionally speaking at least. And so I was doing a lot of freelance writing, and half the stuff that winds up on my blog, um, it's just it's pieces that I. I pitch to publications and they get rejected. Right. Um, and, and so like, you know, uh, I throw them up there because, uh, you know, I wrote stuff, might as well put it out there. Um, even if it's not going to be something I get paid for. Uh, so yeah, it was just, you know, it was like one of those of the moment things. Um, I, again, I, I just seem to recall that, uh, Francis had said something critical of capitalism. A lot of American conservative Catholics seemed really shocked by this. I thought that that was wrong. So I did like a day of research and and threw it up. Um, yeah, I mean, like you said, uh, the, the anti-capitalist side was was way more appealing to me. I mean, um, at at that point, I was identifying as a socialist, but I wasn't organized. Um, I wasn't yet a member of a socialist organization. Um, so you know, I was, I was I guess I was like a, a a baby socialist at that time. Gotcha. Um, yeah. Gotcha. Actually, I mean, uh, just to shift gears randomly because it's a podcast and you're allowed to do that. Uh, Absolutely. What, what you're actually just suddenly making me think about is I saw some of your writings about you, you actually tend to be sympathetic to uh, kind of this culture of things like trigger warnings. And right. so I noticed that and I thought that was kind of interesting because you are also a podcaster and you especially have a podcast that kind of focuses on, um, you know, uh, kind of open free and open speech. So I was wondering if if there's you know any tension there or if you have any hesitations about the um you know the kind of uh emerging kind of a culture of you know what some people would call political correctness but what some leftists you know some leftists say political correctness is a myth so i'm just curious maybe you could tell me a little bit about where you come down on that because uh just especially in light of the fact that you seem to also be interested in kind of open free speech yeah, I mean, uh, I, 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 insofar as I've written about um, trigger warnings, it was it was mainly to say that uh, I don't actually see them as a major presence on college campuses, and yeah. maybe it's just maybe it's just the nature of the schools at which I've taught. I mean, I've taught at two, um, you know, big American, uh, you know, state flagship universities, both in Pennsylvania and Florida, and I've also worked at a, a community college down here in Florida, which is where I now live. Um, and you know maybe maybe at like Yale or Smith or whatever trigger warnings uh, and safe spaces are a big thing. But whenever I mention them to students, they have literally no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you know for me, like a, a lot of the discourse around um, trigger warnings, it, it, it seems to be these folks who think that it's somehow the obligation of an educator to go out of their way to to shock their students and make them uncomfortable. Mm. And I mean, I certainly think that education, you know, part of education is making people uncomfortable, but I think that it should be the ideas themselves that make them uncomfortable rather than um, the mode of presentation, you know? And so my example in the piece that I wrote about trigger warnings was basically like, um, 
you know, when I, when I show clips from 12 Years a Slave in my, my uh, Civil War history courses, I warn people in advance that they're about to, like, watch a human being be tortured. Um, and if they're not cool with that, you know, like, I'm not going to give them a hard time. Um, and I, I just sort of see that as, as, as you know, common decency. It, it doesn't strike me as, like, some concession to the fragility of, of college students. And, and I, personally, I, I just don't tend to find college students fragile. Um, I mean, again, maybe that's, you know, rose-colored glasses. Maybe that's the nature of the institutions where I've worked. But um, I just don't, I don't really see the problem of the, the culture of political correctness um, the way that a lot of commentators do. I mean, so, so what's sort of your, I know that you identify pretty militantly as like a free speech advocate. So I mean, what's sort of your take on, on the, the political correctness issue? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, yeah, I definitely tend to be just sort of temperamentally uh a free speech absolutist type i mean i yeah i think that generally we should as a society try to have the most open uh kind of speech norms possible that that's definitely where i come down generally but it is interesting because i'm kind of listening to what you're saying and i'm thinking about how in my own personal experience as an academic i actually haven't had much contact with um you know the infamous like student activists that right. that are kind of uh, much talked about right now, but I, in other ways, I have had a lot of contact with that. Just as a like as an activist, as as a kind of someone right. who's been on the radical left for like about six years, really since Occupy. Um, right. So I so on the one hand, I I actually have a lot of contact and experience with um, the the leftist culture of um, wanting to basically police speech and behavior. Right. Um, but, but I am, as I'm listening to what you're saying in my experience with students as a teacher, I, so I did my PhD at Temple and now I'm an academic in the UK. And so those are the only two institutions I've been at as a teacher, but, right. um, but that's, you know, a, a, I guess I have like f- about five years teaching in the university under my belt. Right, right. I've never actually had, um, any particularly interesting episodes or run-ins as a teacher. So, so I think you're onto something in saying that you know, the, the sort of perception that there's, you know, campus activists everywhere trying to shut down speech and they're all like a bunch of, um, you know, precious snowflakes is probably, I think you're right that it's, 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 it's actually a relatively small uh, minority really of, of students that that could even possibly apply to most of the students right. like don't really care that, you know, I think a lot of academics and intellectuals get really into their like little internet debates and they imagine that everyone else is like paying, right. att- paying attention. And meanwhile, like most people in the world have no idea what the hell you're even talking about. And students, I think do fall into that. So, um, right. so yeah, I think that but that's totally true. It's, it's, it's interesting though. So, I mean, I, I guess, um, my feelings are also informed by two, two sets of experiences that sort of pull in slightly different directions. Um, so one of them, I don't know if this this made the news in the UK. I don't even know if this made the news in most parts of, of the US. Hmm. Um, but I guess last last fall, the white nationalist Richard Spencer uh, spoke at the University of Florida, which is where I teach. Um, and um, uh, there had been a lot of efforts to to shut down uh, or to get the convince the university to rescind the invitation to Spencer. Um, and I was very firmly in support um, of those efforts. Um, uh-huh. and, uh, for, for me, I mean, this wasn't so much an issue of whether, um, there should be prior restraint on, 
uh, on Spencer's speech, but rather about whether a institution that represents or embodies the public should be in the business of inviting um, people who advocate the murder of like one fifth or two fifths of the student body. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, like, I guess the Spencer event was kind of a formative one for me in terms of my thinking on this, because I saw people get silenced um, because uh, of the the presence of Spencer and other white nationalists on campus, right? Like folks left town. Um, they were they were scared to come out of their buildings. Hmm. Um, there were faculty centers that were basically shut down for the entire week, right? So like there was a lot of speech that didn't happen. There were classes that didn't happen quite literally because of Spencer's presence. And I think that 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 um, that inculcated in me an appreciation for. Uh, to an extent, like the the zero, the fact that sometimes, like I, I generally think that speech is not a zero sum game, mm. but I think that there are definitely instances where it is, and the Spencer thing seemed to be seemed to me to be proof of an instance where there is it is a zero sum game. There were some people who were silenced because the university decided that um, that Spencer, um, you know, deserved to have a, a place on campus. Um, so that that was one thing. Uh, that I think about when I think about free speech debates. But then I also think about um, an activist organization that kind of sprung up spontaneously in Gainesville, which is the city I live in after the 2016 election. And, um, you know, there was, uh, in, in that setting, um, it was kind of this big umbrella, like Big Ten organization that was supposed to bring together both new activists and seasoned activists and activist organizations around opposition to Trump and Trump's agenda. Mm-hmm. Um and I definitely saw, you know, a certain amount of, like, activist policing of speech. Um, but and but ultimately, I think the thing that I, I, I realized was that while that policing of speech did alienate some people from the coalition, the, the kinds of speech that they were policing also would have and did alienate people from the coalition, right? So there was sort of like a lot of oblivious white activists or, or, or like newbie ap- activists who showed up and were saying stuff that was not intentionally racist, but it was nevertheless racist. Okay. And 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 folks like called it out and, and, and called it out really, really harshly and aggressively. Um, and, you know, I can't say with any accuracy that um, that the call out was what like caused the coalition to break down because you could just as easily say that the racist comments, which um, would have ultimately caused the coalition to break down. Does, does that make sense? What I'm saying there? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think yeah, you're you're introducing a lot of interesting points, and I actually think maybe we should pause on this and, and break it down a little bit because I. I definitely disagree on on a few counts, but you're you know a very eloquent defender of that position. So this this will be a good exercise, I think. Going back to um, one of the first points you made when you were talking about the Richard Spencer case, for instance. Now, what I think is interesting and difficult about this case is that, or cases such as that, is that I think I generally would agree with you that in cases where you know to use a legal term, there's some sort of like clear and present danger. Uh, you know, if a speaker is like literally, you know, um, threatening or or inciting violence um, in like a very concrete way, uh, then I, I think in such cases, I I I I can understand and I'm somewhat sympathetic to that being a pretty bright line for for you know where free speech ends. Now, what's interesting about though about the about people like Richard Spencer is that. 
I completely understand the interpretation, like what you said about him, that, you know, basically directly kind of calling for genocide or, or, or violence or this sort of thing. But the thing, the tricky thing here, though, is that people like him are very good at not literally doing that. Do you know what I mean? Right. And yeah. so, I mean, he, 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 he treads very close to that line, yes, but yeah. rarely, rarely actually crosses it. Right. And so that's an issue. That's a, that's a, that's, that's a, a challenge, I think. And it's a vexing challenge because, you know, we might kind of know what people like Richard Spencer are kind of winking at when they use, you know, coded language or dog whistles or whatever it might be. And right. we might, you know, have very good reason uh, and make plausible inferences that they're beckoning or, uh, you know, or, or referring to, um, you know, actual violence or, or things like that. But so long as they are treading that line uh, correctly and, and they are staying just this side of inciting direct violence, then I actually do think that it's, it's pretty important that we don't um, jump the gun and start um, and, and start kind of treating that as if it is crossing the line because I actually think that I, I actually feel like that's like ultimately going to be for anyone interested in like the radical left or emancipatory, you know, uh, radical anti-institutional politics. Anyone who is interested in those sorts of things really need to be as uh, committed as possible to uh, kind of protecting that that space of, of radical free speech, even when there are lots of people out there who would say that it's um, it's really close to being unacceptable. So, yeah, in this weird way, I actually think the radical right and people like Richard Spencer are kind of baiting the left into um, being like overly uh, repressive to a degree that is ultimately going to snuff out the very possibilities of like radical emancipatory um, dialogue and action. Well, I, and I, I, I appreciate that, but I, I guess my my rebuttal would be twofold, right? I mean, that's an argument that um, you know my podcast co-host has has oftentimes made to me that, um, in a sense, the left needs to preserve um, speech rights so that the state or various reactionary forces don't use those those same bludgeons against the left, right? Um, but I mean, I think my feeling is that I mean. Uh, you know, the left has been a, a fearsome defender of free, free speech in the past, and it has literally done nothing to save the left from the forces of reaction. Or at least, if, if, I, I should probably be more careful in my characterization, but it's been very, it's done very little. And I, it, it does strike me as, as ironic that at this moment where we're talking about, you know, the intolerance of, uh, of the left, that we literally have Republican state legislatures passing laws that make it, um, make it okay for, uh, for motorists to just run down uh, uh, protesters, hmm. um, or where we have, um, you know, um, uh, le- legislation that's passing through state houses and even uh, it seems through the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, not legislation, but a case that would have the same effect, um, that, you know, severely limiting workers' ability to speak and assemble um, in collective bargaining units. So, I mean, I, I, I find, I guess, I guess that's my first point, that um, we... This this whole idea that if we defend free speech for right wingers, that right wingers will somehow defend it for us. I think that that's just historical bunk. Like they, they don't give a shit. They they will never defend it for us. Um, yeah. No. And, I, oh God. Sorry. And well. And no. Go ahead. And there's another point I wanted to make, but um, but okay. I want to hear what you have to say. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't think the rationale is so much that the left needs to defend free speech uh, so that the right will also defend it for the left. 
I agree with you that that's kind of just implausible. That's not so much how how you know political dialogue over time works. Um, it's more that by sort of enforcing particular speech codes, what happens is that the the right actually becomes more resentful and ultimately more more violent i actually i actually do basically think that that is kind of one way to read the past decade or two especially since the 90s um that basically i mean the rise of social liberalism has become so ascendant that um you know for for people who don't who aren't really sympathetic to kind of leftist progressive uh social norms you know they've they've kind of they've had to adapt and uh things like homosexuality and you know race and interracial marriage and all these things that you know even like 30 years ago uh a fair number of people just were not cool with all of those people have got have had to kind of uh accept them and 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 adjust to them um and and in a lot of ways, it's really great, obviously. Like, we live in a much more accepting, tolerant culture nowadays than we did, you know, 30 years ago or so. But but I do think a lot about the, the small number of people um, who – well, no, not even small number of people. Really, like, you know, the conservative half of the population that might just for their own temperamental reasons not be as happy with that. Um, my I, I, My sense is that what's happening now is that – kind of social the social liberal left has is is so kind of ascendant in that respect that as it gets more aggressive in kind of controlling what other people are allowed to say in public those people actually get more and more angry and you're going to see more you know you're more and more likely to see the things like people like Donald Trump get elected i mean i really do kind of read the trump election as a kind of uh outcome of um the 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 kind of leftist culture um, that that's become ascendant uh, in kind of you know mainstream neoliberal kind of like identity politics, but that's just my yeah. view. No, and and I I I think that there's something there, but I I mean I guess where I would push back is that um, you know I I agree for example that I think that there's a great deal of right wing resentment against a perceived culture of political correctness yeah. uh, and policing of speech, but I guess I fundamentally question how real I think that that phenomenon is, and I also question how how strictly limited that is to to the left, right? I mean the left gets tarred with this all the time, hmm. but there's an there's an equally virulent um, strain of policing amongst conservatives around you know sort of um patriotic issues and issues pertaining to like troops and first responders you know there are certain people who you know in in right-wing circles you just simply cannot critique uh and whom even liberals are at their their peril to uh to liberals or leftists are at their peril um to critique to uh to vocally in, in, in public settings. Right. So mm. I guess I, I sort of, you know, it's not that, um, it's not that the resentment isn't real. It's that I think the thing that they are resentful about is vastly overstated mm. and, um, that, you know, a lot of right wing media outlets have, have, 
uh, understood that it's a pathway to power to sort of gin up these resentments um, while ignoring the way in which basically everything that's being said about the left could just as easily be said about the right um, and yet has has not had the same kind of, um, you know, resent generating uh, effects as as what we've seen on the right. Um, yeah. Hmm. Well, that's yeah, maybe. I mean, that's interesting. I guess I guess that's kind of an open, debatable, empirical question, because my sense is that the sort of history of the past few decades is basically one in which all of the domains in which conservatives tried to exert social control for moralistic reasons, they basically lost and kind of the floodgates of liberal progressive um uh, you know, multicultural kind of tolerance and diversity uh, basically came crashing down on them, and they completely lost that. So, you know, I'm ha- I have in mind, of course, things like, you know, everything from like desegregation to homosexuality up to gay marriage right. and to sure. legalization of marijuana, all of these things. Um, you know, the, the, these are floodgates that like moralistic, controlling conservatives uh, tried to stop for, for, and were quite passionate about trying to stop, but now. Right after those floodgates have completely demolished kind of the, the conservative ability for, for moral control. I, I actually do think that now the, the dominant kind of attitude among those moralistic conservatives is, okay, well, those battles are, you know, they might be, they might be pissed off about it internally. They might have their own arguments. They might be um, resentful or whatever, but more or less their attitude is, um, well, they're going to do their thing. That's already all out of control. So at least let let us live in peace and let us have our norms and let us have our opinions. And at the very least, you know, we've let all of you social liberals do all of these things that we were opposed to. But now at the very least, we're going to be allowed to say what we want to say. And if you start coming for that, then that's when they're going to get re- that that's like that's like where they're they're going to draw the line and i think you see that with with trump i mean one of the main sort of things that trump ran on not so much explicitly although even somewhat explicitly he did actually you know mention you know political correctness and things like that at various points but i really do think that his you know the particular unique identity or ethos of of someone like donald trump really you know it really i think shows that uh what that that what people wanted was not just the kind of like populist outsider, but specifically someone to smash down sort of this um, this like system of you know what is perceived as kind of left liberal uh, linguistic codes that you know right. uh, most th- that lots of conservative people feel like not only are they kind of left out of and excluded from, but like they feel like they've they've kind of tolerated so many things they don't like from people that, you know, when is their turn to just simply be able to say what it is they want to say without, right. you know, being called like genocidal for saying that. And so that's why I, I, when, you know, when I, that, when I see, you know, campus activists or whoever it might be, um, you know, calling someone like you saying someone like Richard Spencer should not be allowed to speak anywhere because he's genocidal, even though he's very carefully, uh, not calling for, for violence in any kind of particularly explicit way that's that's when i'm sort of like okay this is exactly what got us trump and it's it's there's not we're not learning from it we're actually people on the left are doubling down on it and i fear that that's going to be this like right versus left uh kind of dialectic is going to be like the engine that's going to make american politics increasingly uh worse and worse precisely along the lines that trump represents that's that's interesting and and um i mean 
there are elements of that that I find uh, kind of compelling, but I, I, I also sort of see this as, and I, I know you don't identify as liberal, nor do I, um, but I, I see this as uh, that kind of argument in some ways is kind of typical with the liberal tendency to like negotiate with yourself before mm. actually making demands. Mm. Um, I mean, you know, like what's the parallel of this? You know, desegregation really pissed off conservatives too. Um, I mean, are we gonna are we gonna go like go back in time and undo desegregation because it it caused massive resistance? It's like when when you are taking power. Um, whatever whatever your goal may be in taking power right like you're going to piss people off um and i think this this sort of well how do we how do we make people feel like they've like they haven't lost when in fact they have lost um that strikes me as the same kind of mentality in some respects as as sort of like um democrats in 2009 2010 trying to make um uh, the ACA more palatable to Republicans when they knew damn well the Republicans were never going to like it. Period. Um, I, I don't know. I just you know. Yeah. I, I think I think that you're you're onto something in the sense that yes, it's causing resentment, but I also don't know. You know, short of just giving up, I don't know what we can do that will not cause resentment. Um, and I guess there's a couple other things that, that I I wanted to add. And um, the the first one is that I think that, that yes, there there is. Um, there is some danger. I, I mean, I recognize. I, I think you're absolutely right. There is some danger inherent in um, some degree of the policing that goes on in, in, in left circles. Even if I think that um, that policing is overstated, and even if I think that um, that policing is far outstripped by what's happening both legally and culturally on the right. Um, but I also think uh, that you know, as the left is trying to grapple with the diversity of of the United States in the, the 21st century, there are real dangers in not representing constituencies who feel directly threatened um, by folks like Richard Spencer, right? So, like, in Gainesville, mm. for a lot of socialist organizations, we're already operating in this environment where a lot of activists of colors uh, tend to think of socialism as this, like, white male movement, you know, kind of um, the, all the slurs about the Bernie bros and things like that. Um, and so I think it was really essential for us to be in solidarity with with communities of color, activists of color, because, um, you know, if we are going to build a socialism, um, both locally, nationally and internationally, that is capable of affecting real change, I mean, we have to have, um, you know, communities who are not just, you know, white men on board. And I, I think that beyond our, our, our like, uh, you know, our, our own theoretical critique of the situation. Um, there is also a pragmatic component because I'm a member of Socialist Alternative, which is a member of the CWI. Um, I, th- I forget exactly what our sister organization is called in, in Britain, but we have uh, parties throughout the world. Um, I mean, I think that, that our take uh, in Socialist Alternative was that, you know, th- th- this it was really important to be there for activists of color, that, that our, our future in Gainesville um, and in North Central Florida, more broadly, um, demands that you know at this like critical moment that we don't sort of fall back on uh, you know theoretical conversations about the importance of of free speech, but instead you know put our put ourselves on the line and join in solidarity with folks who are trying to uh, get get Spencer out of the community. So that that was that was I think a lot of what our reasoning was yeah. uh, around that event. Yeah, I feel that. Um, what w- tell me a little bit more about your organization or more broadly kind of what is your um i'm curious like what what is your sense of 
the the end game that you're interested in? How do you see kind of uh, radical politics playing out ideally in your in your kind of vision or politics? Yeah, I mean, I, here um, that's a really good question, and I'm I'm probably going to give a somewhat mealy-mouthed answer, and I would also be really interested in, in your answer to this. Yeah. And it's partially because, like, on the one hand, as an as an activist, I have um, one you know set of outcomes that I would very much like to see, mm-hmm. um, and then as somebody who's you know trained at least professionally as a historian, I have a different, if not set of uh, desired outcomes, certainly a, a different set of expected outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I guess as an activist, you know, um, uh, I uh, the Socialist Alternative and the CWI, it's a Trotskyist organization, um, you know, uh, we sort of subscribe to the transitional program. Um, so, you know, the, the kind of um, motivating ideology of the party, both locally and internationally, is, you know, um, sort of long-term revolutionary outlook, but uh, a belief that um, par- part of the pathway to revolutionary outcomes involves um, a degree of parliamentarism um, and also a degree of reformism in the short run. But, like, not reformism for its own sake, but yeah. reformism as something that enables revolutionary change in the longer term. Right. right? So we don't think about, you know, universal health care just as, um, you know, something that is uh, a human right, something that people deserve because they're human beings, and uh, something that we should provide because we live in a rich society that's capable of delivering these services, but also because, you know, we argue that if folks aren't constantly worrying about their health, they can actually engage in more activism um, and take greater risks in their communities um, and in larger society. So um, that's sort of the position of SA as an organization. Um, you know, uh, ideally, I would I would love... Um, you know, I, I tend to, I, I think, skew far closer to pacifism than maybe um, some some uh, socialists do. Um, I mean, I certainly, you know, envision revolutionary change. I think that that revolutionary change um, not only can be accomplished, but is in fact most likely to succeed um, through revolutionary nonviolent direct action rather than, um, you know, armed insurrection. Uh, But, you know, I I would, uh, broadly speaking, identify as a a revolutionary socialist, even if I, I, I personally am more convinced of the prospects of um, of nonviolent direct action, uh, but so so that's sort of like my theoretical take, my take as an activist. But I guess as a historian, um, you know, my, I, I'm I'm always um, skeptical about how effectively um, socialists can organize in the U.S. Like, is 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 the U.S. just um, mm. you know hopelessly mired in uh, in, in capitalist ideology. I don't know. Um, and so I think at very least, like my, my, um, my more realistic outcome is that there needs to be a powerful and viable left, even if that left is not capable of, of taking power that we at least need to be strong enough to make the democratic party less terrible than it is. Um, so yeah, I, that that that's like my that's my historian's take. It, like when I'm feeling more cynical, that oh, we probably won't take power, but at least we'll succeed in making um, you know the center left party uh, some semblance of like a working people's party. Um, and my activist take is you know yeah, let's organize and you know change things like fundamentally. Yeah. Okay. I hear you. Definitely. A lot of that sounds. Pretty good to me. So, were you into? I guess you were uh, well into Bernie Sanders. Yeah, I mean, um, I uh, I 
you know, a lot of my um, I was a very lazy activist prior to um, prior to Trump's election. Um, you know, I, I would I would talk a lot with people and I would write and I sort of saw my teaching as um, an element of activism, even though I was, you know, careful not to like just out and out, um, you know, uh, preach from the, the lectern or whatever. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I mean, I support Bernie. I voted for Bernie in the primary, um, you know, but I, I ultimately wound up campaigning for Clinton um, during the 2016 election. I mean, okay. I, I didn't, I didn't do so particularly enthusiastically. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure if I would have, if, if I had it to do over again, uh, if I would do it now. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm married to an immigrant. And so a lot of these issues, uh, around, um, immigration, I mean, they, they, they strike really close to home. And while I believe at sort of a theoretical level that at some point we do fundamentally as, as a left need to make a break with, with the Democratic Party in the U.S. Yeah. Um, and organize a real working class party. I also recognize that, you know, in, in the short run, that's probably going to hurt some people and, um, you know, allow like shitheads uh, like Trump to take power and um, use ICE in uh, ways that were even more harmful than what, for example, the, the Obama administration was doing. Right. Yeah, I hear you. Well, I mean, I can tell you a little bit about what I think, I guess. It's I, in many ways extremely different, I think, than than kind of the model that that you're operating on but in to be honest i mean i don't really have it figured out i would say that actually in the moment i'm in a pretty profound kind of reorienting uh stage i think um what i have right now at the moment is you know in my mind as far as my own kind of uh political perspective goes is really just a set of coordinates i think like a few big points that i've become really interested in and also just kind of i've become really convinced that that they're essential and i'm basically trying to integrate them or update them i mean so for for years i mean basically from occupy wall street until um really almost like last year honestly uh i was i was kind of i had a a similar perspective as yours i was a little bit more kind of on the anarcho communist kind of insurrectionary kind of angle Right. Um, and a lot of that comes through Occupy. I kind of got radicalized in Occupy and I kind of, right, right. yeah. So that kind of gives you a, a touchstone for kind of the, the style of, of politics that I guess I got, uh, kind of very sure. interested in there. But after that, I kind of got more into activism and traditional organizing. I met a lot of organizers and traditional activists through Occupy and kind of came to respect it more and kind of got socialized into it. And yeah, so I was like a pretty, you know, standard, uh, good, noble kind of leftist uh, activist right. organizer <laughs> um and i was that for a while and even when i came to the uk i kind of joined organizations here i uh, was a member of anti-fascist groups here uh right. like, did a bunch of demonstrations I, I was a member of a group called plan c which is a pretty cool like uh revolutionary anti-capitalist group in in the uk they're they're kind of independent but they're they're really cool and uh i was you know quite quite at home with them for, for a while. Anyway, so that was like for several, several years. Um, but really it was only about last year that I, uh, I got really interested in these topics actually that we were just talking about for the past, uh, you know, half hour or so about, about things like, uh, speech and how we choose to speak to each other or don't speak to each other. And like what it's, what people are allowed to say or think in activist meetings. Like I became very interested in, um, how in, honestly, not even just 
uh, the problems of activist culture, but just really group psychology. I became very, right. I became very attuned to the myriad ways in which uh, all groups tend to have um, certain kind of self-deceiving tendencies, and that's just kind of how groups maintain themselves in some sense. Right. And so I became very interested in that sort of stuff, and I, I just became very, um, I was increasingly convinced that those problems are actually at the base of why the radical left. Uh, does not kind of uh, expand in healthy, radical, emancipatory ways that that te- okay. that tend to threaten kind of the larger status quo. I, I became I became increasingly convinced, or I, I was increasingly seeing the ways in which, again, it's not even like a, a a big kind of like righteous you know critique of political correctness or anything like that. It was more basic group psychology kinds of stuff, um, right? And and so I. Because I was I was increasingly seeing those things and becoming interested in those things, I started exploring them more, and and I was I was I was even surprised by how many minor things actually got me in a lot of trouble among my friends. Like there were certain okay. there were certain things like you know you're really just not allowed to uh, really even like read about or like talk you know like <laughs> you know there are certain types of books that if you like have in your, you know, stack of books from the, from the library, like, a you know, you're, you're, you're seen as like, um, as like not a good leftist or something like that. And I, I right. and so I became increasingly, I, st- I started to notice those things more and more just cause I was getting intrigued in, in different types of, uh, topics or whatever. And so, yeah, without getting, you know, I, I could tell you the whole story and, uh, talk your ear off for hours and maybe one day you'd want to hear about all that. But, um, <laughs> honestly, you could, you could piece it together if you looked through my, my Absolutely. archive or whatever. Uh, so I won't go over it all now, but basically that's, that's the long and short of it. And so, um, ultimately I kind of came to the view that activism as we know it, I, I personally, I can, I just cannot personally believe in activism as we know it um okay and i i say that with some reservations because and i choose my words wisely because i don't want to tell anyone not to do it i really don't i really don't and i don't want to attack it and i don't want to be cynical and and, uh poo-poo people i mean i like um one of my favorite philosophers is uh gilles deleuze and one of the famous uh you know things that he has said he's got a lot of brilliant one-liners but one of the things he says is uh there's really no reason to object to anything. Uh, if you know, you, if you if you don't like something, just ignore it. You know, uh, if you like it, then you participate in it. Uh, and if you mm. can't if you can't connect with it, then you know, there's no need to to poo poo it. There's no need to uh, you know object. Just look the other way and look for new weapons in a direction that you want to move in. Uh, right. And I'm extremely sympathetic to that. So so I have lots of friends on the on the activist left and. Uh, I, I, I want them to succeed. I would love to see, you know, like, you know, the the grassroots uh, social democratic movements, like, make the world a better place for everyone uh, and more equal for everyone. I would love to see that. So I don't want to tell people not to do that. But I've come to think personally that um, I just – how should I put this? My, my sense was increasingly that when I went to activist meetings, all I could really see or feel was – that it was kind of a, uh, it was kind of a theater. Um, right. And one of the ways that that came through for me is because I, you know, I'm a social scientist. So I think very, sure. I think very analytically about causes and effects. And one of my, one of my attitudes that I have always brought to radical politics is I want to, 
I want to use the absolute strongest tools we have in the most sophisticated ways possible to really kind of um, reverse engineer how the status quo hangs together and to really rigorously and radically apply ourselves to unwiring the status quo and, and creating, uh, you know, emancipatory dynamics uh, right. in the most sophisticated way possible. And so I think like a scientist, I, I want to make hypotheses and I want to test it against data. And if you can't convince me that something is going to have the hypothesized effect that it's going to have, then I call bullshit. And so right. it, and I, so obviously, I mean, I'm not like an elitist or like, I don't look down on people who don't think like that or anything like that. Um, so it's not like I need all of my activist comrades to think like that or want to do that. It was right. more, yeah, it was more Sean, just that, that, in, that very interest in of mine, that, that way that I saw it was like prohibited. And it's like, whenever, okay. whenever I wanted to kind of push things in that direction or be more challenging and really kind of ask people, okay, but let's break this down. Like, is, is any of this campaign that we're doing, is any of it going to, in any plausible way, lead to the revolutionary kind of dynamics or outcomes that we want? Like, can anyone make me a, a convincing argument that any of these effects are going to be brought about from, from the things that we're trying to put into action? And, and at the very, very best, all I would hear is, you know, crickets. Um, but, but, right. but often typically, you know, a lot of people would, you know, you, you start getting dirty looks and you've, people think that you're attacking them and you start getting a bad, a bad reputation. And so basically I came to the viewpoint that, um, while I support, you know, people who are trying to fight for a better society, my, the, the personal position I came to was that what we, what we really don't have enough of right now today is radical, folks trying their honest best to figure out like how things work. Um, and, and I feel like as a social scientist and as, you know, someone who invested a lot of time and energy in developing a certain kind of expertise or, or a certain kind of sophistication and understanding how, you know, how to, how to make inferences about the world from, from limited data. Uh, I, I kind of came to the personal perspective that that was actually the most powerful and dangerous kind of thing that I had. And so long as activism was like a big, massive uh, kind of break on it, uh, one that said to me that, okay, there's something deeply wrong with activism if it's if it's not interested in in figuring these things out, at least being open to figuring these things out one. So I got to get out of here because this is this is just like a a toxic environment, I think, for for me anyway. Um, And two, that. I actually think I can be of more use to the revolutionary movements, if you will, simply carving out the space I need for myself to think and write and speak as, as radical, as radically incisive and honest and analytically powerful as I'm able to. And if that means I can't be part of a group or, or like a, you know, a named labeled movement, then I'll take the isolation and, and radical personal creativity. Uh, any day of the week. And that's kind of what I came yeah. to. Yeah. So sorry, that, that was a I bit mean, of a speech, but that's my, that's how I would, I would tell kind of how I see my own politics over the past uh, year or so. No. And, and I mean, I, um, I mean, uh, there, there, there's probably about a solid 75% of that, that, that I, uh, if not outright agree with, certainly sympathize with. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I do think that in so many ways, the machinery of activism is, is just broken. Like mm-hmm. it's, we're, 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 we're trying the same strategies again and again and again. Right. And they fail to produce even modestly emancipatory outcomes. Um, and yet we keep doing them. Um, 
So I mean, I uh, yeah, I mean, I think I think there. I mean, I, I think that there's uh, you know, oftentimes a sort of failure of imagination uh, uh, around activism. I guess, um, and I, I also do think that there's a certain degree of of groupthink. Uh, in activist circles, mm. I guess um, I tend to be relatively forgiving of some of these failures because I see them as kind of endemic of every institution of what I, of which I've been a part. I mean, the historical pr- profession is like, you know, moribund and committed to reproducing the same ideas, even though those ideas and those practices don't produce the desired outcome. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I feel like universities as a whole kind of do the same thing. I mean, they're in this rut. I mean, I, maybe it's just the, the, that I'm attracted to like these, these failing institutions that um, don't have any vitality left in them. I maybe that says something like deep and terrible about me. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I do think that, that oh, that dimension of, of activism is certainly spot on as, as at least as far as I've seen. Um, but I, I, I guess I question how unique it is. Um, but I, I think a larger point, and this was actually something I, I wanted to talk about earlier and it, it speaks to, um, to your critique of outrage culture, which I, I think uh, besides our conversation around Catholic anti-capitalism was one of the first, um, first ways in which I became aware of, of you as an internet presence. Oh, right. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I feel like beyond sort of when, when we're talking about speech issues and this, um, this will hopefully tie back into what you're saying about activism Yeah. that when we're talking about, about speech issues, um, there, we sometimes need to, more carefully separate the substance of the the critique versus the style in which it's um, in which it's rendered. And I, I do think that one of the casualties of the internet, internet age, and this has begun to bleed over into real life settings, is just like the 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 uh, the unpleasantness of virtually all interactions, um, <laughs> and and the ease and eagerness with which people resort to like really extreme um really extreme positions Mm -hmm. uh and i mean i say this like i'm i'm not you know i'm certainly not critical of of radicalism in in virtually any any aspect of life that's not really what i'm talking about i guess what i'm talking about is just like people getting really mad really really quickly oftentimes about really small things um yeah and uh, you know, like to go back to the example that I mentioned earlier, where I was talking about um, activists of color really aggressively calling out, um, uh, you know, sort of clueless white liberals. Um, you know, one of the, I, like I, I, I kind of feel like where the conversation broke down, and this is going to come dangerously close to tone policing. Um, so I, I beg forbearance on the part of like both you and anybody listening. Um, but I mean, I, I think that, that where so many of these conversations break down is that that like things just get really heated really quickly, and um, there's no there's no opportunity for actual um, dialogue where people grow. Um, there's and I, I think that there's a certain sense that like people need to enter leftist politics with um, a degree of of purity already in hand, um, and I mean this is this is kind of a two way street, right? Because I think that. On one hand, we have like a lot of a lot of activists who have been answering the same questions over and over and over and over and over again, and are tired of giving the same answer. And I like I totally respect that. I get that. But on the other hand, we also have sort of folks who are new, who are oftentimes uh, extremely fragile, and who are unwilling to hear the critique itself. Um, and and this is just kind of a toxic recipe for 
for meaningful conversations that allow people to to grow um and you know it's not that i don't understand where people are coming from in these in-person settings but i think that oftentimes people have less patience in person because we're already all so immersed in this horrifically toxic um online sphere of activism where people are just like constantly being terrible to one another. Um, yeah. And it might sound, you know, it might sound sort of like Pollyanna-ish to suggest that if we were just nicer to each other, that some of these problems could be eradicated. But I really do think that some of this is just like, there's just, there's a pervasive shittiness to life online that to an extent has bled over into in-person um, uh, activist settings that um, that is compromising our ability to do good work. Yeah, well, I think that's well put. That's for sure. Um, I mean, I I wonder what you would think about this because I kind of always had this hypothesis. I've never really been able to um, sell it in like the activist left, but it really goes back to what we were talking about before when we were talking about free speech and related issues. I actually really think that of all sort of groups or organizations or subcultures that could most benefit from uh, a kind of shared ethics of radical free speech, even, I just mean within organizations, like within uh, interpersonal relationships even, it, it's, it's actually the radical left. And that I sometimes think if there, if, if there was one possible panacea or just one specific kind of intervention that could possibly be most radically effective for kind of rejuvenating the uh, kind of health and energy and, and kind of power even of of like radical left groups, it would be adopting a, po- a simple policy of radical free speech. And I'm not talking about like the politics of you know external speakers and that whole can of worms like we were talking about with right. like Richard Spencer. Sure, sure, sure. I'm saying put all of that put all of that aside. I mean for for people that like you have you know a, a basic minimum amount of you know trust and experience with like your comrades in your groups or whatever. Um, for those people. There should be, I think, um, a, a basic norm of radical free speech in that basic, like, basically, if it's on the level of saying words, it no, nothing that bad can happen to you, and nothing that bad, it can't be taken that seriously. And it, but more, more importantly, I think, like, what it really comes down to is the principle of charity, where which is you know the idea that you assume that the person you're talking with. Um, is trying to say something that is true and good and valuable. Um, and if it hurts your feelings or if it seems offensive or if it seems really wrong or even if it seems, you know, evil in some some way, you actually, the first stage is you assume that's because you don't understand something um, and that surely this person is trying to get at something good and true, but it's just very strange and alien to you and you feel threatened and that's fine, but it's just language. And, and I think that if, if activist groups could, could actually practice, like if you could, if you could wave a magic wand, like give me two activist groups, like one of, you know, activist group A has 25 people, activist group B has 25 people. Um, and they're more or less equal in like most of their average, uh, dimensions. Um, and you could just wave a magic wand and one of them starts operating on, on just a basic ethics of, of radical free speech and the principle of charity. I, I really do think that it's, it's empirically and social scientifically reasonable to imagine how that, that that group would rapidly start to grow in power. Um, because what would happen is 
well, one, the creativity would skyrocket. People would be able to propose uh, a, a far wider variety of ideas, and uh, simply by increasing, you know, the the options that get circulated, um, that's that's going to be a massive boon. But you're also going to see things like trust and relaxation, and all of these kinds of uh, kind of intangible psychosociological uh, resources would, would really start being brewed up like crazy um, and kind of multiplied. And I actually really do think that that's, that's one possible specific kind of intervention or, or reform, if you will, that people can actually start applying within their own groups that really speaks to, to, to actual emancipatory dynamics that potentially could start spreading throughout society. And, and so whether you agree or not a whether you agree or disagree with that, you you know feel free to feel free to say. But this this also at least gives you some understanding of um, why I had kind of had to make my break with the organized activist right. left because I was increasingly com- coming to that viewpoint that radical free speech is actually precisely what we need the most. Yeah, I I I, um, I guess um, I'm. To, to me, what I feel is lacking oftentimes is not so much the the um, the willingness to encounter hostile speech, but rather the charity. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess like I would put more emphasis on the charity than the radical free speech. Yeah, um, because I mean, at least in the activist circles where where I'm involved, I mean, I don't I don't. It's not that um, the, the the big obstacle is not that. Um, I, I'm, I don't know if there's an easy or meaningful way to disentangle them, but right, it's that 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 willingness to believe that um, that that people are operating from uh, a place of good intentions, yeah. and that they're oftentimes just having difficulty um, expressing themselves in in um, the most the mo- in, in the most optimal way, right? I mean, I oftentimes think about this, you know, like. Obviously, I'm not a, a, a uh, you know, TED Talk uh, talker. I don't know what, what, what you call somebody who do, does TED Talks for a living, uh, right? Or like a, uh, or a schmuck. There we go. Yeah, or like a motivational speaker. But, you know, in a certain sense, right, like I, I do get paid to talk for a living. Right. And I'm still constantly struck by how many times I, I just do not have the right words to express um, sure. What what I'm actually trying to get at, um, and I think by its very nature, when you are in settings that are supposed to be revolutionary, you should be trying to articulate ideas that don't form themselves readily. Exactly. You know, um, you know, I'm, like I, I remember in grad school thinking, um, like reading a bunch of post-structuralist theorists and thinking, like, what terrible writers they were, and to a certain extent, like. That is true, but I also think the the position I ultimately reached was that, um, you know, in the years since Judith Butler has published Gender Trouble, uh, we have come up with uh, simpler ways of expressing the ideas that she was getting at in there, but when she was getting at them, they were still, for the most part, genuinely new ideas, and so we need to cut, we need to cut theorists some slack, because they're, they're getting at something that people have not gotten at before. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think something similar happens ideally in activist situations where people are, are grappling with ideas that are new to them, um, where they don't have a sort of entrenched vocabulary or set of catchphrases to express their views. And, you know, they're going to mess up sometimes. And we should be as much as possible charitable um, because, you know, we're, we, don't have, we don't have enough people on our side to go, go around alienating folks. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, 
Do you want to... Is there anything that uh, you had on your mind coming into this conversation that you wanted? I don't, I don't want to kind of uh, uh, pigeonhole the conversation into these sorts of culture war topics if, uh, unless, unless you're keen. Uh, I could talk about whatever, really. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I didn't have anything in particular in mind, so I was just, just going to go with the flow. Did you know that we're both from New Jersey? I did not know that. What, what part of Jersey are you yeah, from? Yeah, I only saw on your website this morning when I was going over your stuff uh, one last time that uh, I'm from Ocean Township, New Jersey. In, uh, okay, Monmouth County. You're, I saw you're from Tr- right. Trenton, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm I'm actually from the the, the bordering town, but uh, Trenton barely registers on most people's uh, you know mental or geographical or quite literal maps, uh, and so uh, yeah. I, I, I I'm not going to burden anybody with the name of my actual town. You know, maybe I I'd like to pick your brain a little bit about um, academia and you kind of. Yeah, I don't know your perspective on a few things because it's academia is actually one of the things I'm thinking about uh, a lot lately, even just in, in a personal in a personal capacity. I mean, I as I've done more and more blogging and podcasting and this sort of just totally independent, you know, intellectual work. Really, right? And uh, to be honest with you. I love it so much. Like it's so much more fun and satisfying to, uh, you know, work out my ideas, uh, by, you know, turning on the microphone or, uh, sitting down to, to do a, a, a blog post or whatever. And the, the, the juxtaposition or the contrast actually has, is so great. And, and I feel like it's becoming greater and greater, um, that it's, it's almost starting to be a kind of, problem for me like it's starting to it's starting to become (laughs) it's starting to feel like um like a kind of i don't know how to describe it like it it it, i i feel like my i was relatively content with academia i mean i i i definitely had my gripes with it uh and i probably i think i've always had my gripes with academia uh but the more i do independent intellectual work on the internet the more unbearable the bullshit and the tedium of academic responsibilities become. And, yeah, right. and, and to a point where like, I'm, I'm, I'm really kind of schizophrenic and having a hard time, uh, processing it and, and, and making like reasonable kind of diagnoses of, of, of what to do next or how to prioritize things. Um, and so I'm just curious because you do a podcast and, and you do a lot of, you know, public writing and stuff like that. I'm just um, I almost want to appeal to you for uh, I'm, I'm just curious if anything I just said, if you've ever had uh, feelings like that. And if so, <laughs> and and if so, like how how you how you process that uh, th- that kind of conflict or tension, if you've ever felt it. Uh, and if not, oh, you know, forget it. <laughs> Oh yeah, I, I I totally feel that tension. Yeah, and I, I suppose it's um it's a bit different. I mean, I've I've been um, I'm a trailing spouse. Um, my partner got a job uh, at the University of Florida uh, a little over three years ago, uh, or a little under three years ago, whatever. And uh, so, I mean, for the past two two years and change, two three years, I, I'm losing track of time uh, since the summer of 2015. Um, you know, I've, I've been, um, a long-term adjunct and I've been, you know, I've been grinding out every course that I can get my hands on. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously that's, that's not a, that's not a, a, a professional situation that's conducive to like making you reflect positively upon academia. Right. Um, 
So from a from like a, a, a just a personal perspective, I mean, my my institutional opinion of academia was never that high, and <laughs> um, be, being treated basically like a disposable piece of trash. Um, in the machinery of academia is, is not, um, it doesn't make you like academia anymore. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I sympathize with, with that element. Um, but yeah, I, I guess ever since I started doing the public facing stuff, ever since, um, I started writing for the public or doing podcasting, um, it just seems so much more interesting than the scholarship, uh, or, or I, I guess I should put. I don't want to put them in opposition. It's a more interesting way of doing the scholarship. I don't. I don't right. see what I'm doing on the podcast or in my uh, here and there career as a as a journalist as at odds with my training as a historian. I just kind of see it as like a different way to fulfill um, that training. Um, yeah, it, it's really hard to like um, convince myself to act, that I should actually go write a scholarly article. But <laughs> fortunately, I mean, I guess the one thing I can I can say that's positive about adjuncting is that all of the institutional um, uh, imperatives, um, all the all the reasons uh, or incentives rather for producing traditional scholarly research, like th- they don't exist. I mean, there's I, I have literally no reason to go to conferences or to, to crank out scholarly articles because it will make no difference in my career as an adjunct. Right. Um, so, I mean, I guess that that's kind of part of it. You know, the, I, I've largely given up on it because it didn't really satisfy me that much in the first place, and it now serves no professional purpose. Um, I mean, but d- d- how are you working through the you know this sort of, sort of like pull towards more public facing aspects of of scholarship? Well, it's a really good question, and I have no clue. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm just trying to I'm trying to navigate it, but all I know really is that. The more I do blogging and uh, podcasting, what hap- what's happening is, to be honest, I mean, I'm kind of hoping no one I work with is listening to this because, I mean, I, I actually really like everyone I work with. I don't have a single bad thing to say about the people I work with, um, right. but I'm a little nervous about outing myself uh, in terms of how my attitudes and, and enthusiasms are changing. But sure, I, sure. But I actually feel like I'm I'm finding it. I'm finding it increasingly difficult to like even tolerate. I mean, I mean, and so I mean, like I'm, I have a permanent position. I'm basically, uh, I'm basically the British version of tenured already. It's a much less right. kind of significant type of tenure, but I basically already passed my probation is what it's called here. And so I'm, okay. I'm, I'm permanent and I could basically have this job in British academia probably, uh, forever unless, you know, I were to really screw something up really bad somehow. Um, and, and so it's a little different than what you're describing because, you know, I'm, I am incentivized to do research. And if I right, do sure. lots of good publications, people will respect me and think I'm cool and give me more money and that kind of stuff. Right, um, right, right. So there, the incentives are there and, and it's a relatively, it's certainly a relatively secure position. And in, in, in other words, like I, I kind of won the lottery in, in academic terms. I did have to move to, to the UK, which is something a lot of Americans I think would not do, but, um, yeah, and, and I I made out pretty well, and I kind of got the tenure track job, and then now I'm basically the British version of tenure. And so, my problem is just that um, I find it very boring, to be honest. Yeah, like yeah. The truth is, I mean, I've become a little bit more interested lately in personality psychology and kind of the science mm-hmm. the science of personality, and I've been reading a lot about that, and I actually think it's extremely useful. Um, for understanding just the ways in which people are different, you know, like people do have different traits and people are, right. people have different strengths and weaknesses. And what I'm realizing, I think through this, and 
really it is through my kind of increasing uh, just effort in kind of creative intellectual, totally autonomous intellectual work that I just do because I want to do it and I share it with people um, online. Like getting just, I mean, I'm not like at all like famous or anything. I just have like a very small number of people who, who do read my stuff though. I have, just, right. I have just enough people that it's it's like it feels worthwhile and it's motivating to to produce stuff um but i probably have like the bare minimum of that quantity to to make it feel like that you know so um not bo- right. not boasting at all i mean i'm i'm i have no real influence or anything um but but just having that has brought out um a, a certain experience of cer- some of my traits that um is just like it's really hard to deny and then in contrast to that doing you know the the kind of uh Oh, Sean, are you there? I am, yeah. Oh, I I'm heard sorry. I heard the Skype uh, bubble uh, kind of. Oh, uh, I wasn't sure. Okay. I lost you. No worries. I think we're fine. Um, yeah. So, so basically, just doing, uh, doing, doing this sort of stuff on the internet. Uh, I'm like, put it this way. I'll give you an example to be concrete. I feel like I'm being a little abstract. Like when I get an idea for a blog post, and I, I'm really into the idea. I can easily drop everything I'm doing and write that blog post for like an eight-hour period. Um, right. without even, you know, walking away for a drink, um, and, sure. and feel totally happy and excited. And then I can, I can be done with that eight hours of work and feel proud, happy, interested, satisfied, and like, uh, at the top of my game. And to be honest with you, almost nothing in academic and academia ever gives me that feeling. Um, and, and, you know, even, even the scholarly work that I'm most interested in and like when I'm, you know, when I'm doing good scholarly work that I'm interested in, I'm kind of at the, at the height of my powers and, and I feel like I'm doing good work. I definitely, it, it comes kind of close, but, but even that it's such, um, it's, it's so more tax, it's so much more taxing and, and it's ultimately more alienated for the obvious reason that, you know, like, you know, the drill, you have to kind of like fit everything you're thinking into, this like highly narrow predefined kind of catechism of the previous literature, um, like right. whether you have any interest in that literature at all or not. Um, and it's like, so, so all of all academia really is, as, as you know, is um, it's like taking your intellectual enthusiasm and capacity. And then it's like, it's literally torturing the shit out of it for the sole for the, for the sole purpose <laughs> Well, literally, for the sole purpose yeah. of making it harder for most people to read and of making it of interest to, like, the smallest possible audience. And it's right. like, I think that it's a, like, it's fine. Like, I think there's a certain personality type or, or there are certain personality traits that, like, a secure academic job is is, is perfectly good. Um, You know, like, lots of people can do that, you know, for all their life. And and, and I'm not even shitting on it. That's cool. And, and you, right. lots of good, interesting intellectual value can come, can come out of that. I think the thing is that the whole reason we have that kind of system is obviously do it, – it's a kind of uh, historical heritage of uh, a media – environment or an information communication environment that was radically different than the one that we have today. And so I think it's just, it's, it's so obvious now that all of those kinds of, um, uh, all of those frictions, all of those kinds of institutional, uh, alienating, uh, filters that you have to painfully torturously, uh, kind of filter your intellectual capacities through, it's increasingly obvious that, they don't need to exist anymore. And, right. and once you get a little bit of a taste of like doing all of the stuff that you're doing online 
um, for me anyway, personally, I think for some people, the idea of like doing creative work online and podcasting all the time and making YouTube videos for some people, that sounds horrible because right. people are different. We do have different personality traits. Um, I am, I think significantly more extroverted than the, than the average academic, uh, specifically on the dimension, on the aspect of enthusiasm. It's like one half of, um, extroversion and, <laughs> right. you know, I think when you're really high on enthusiasm, you want to have projects that you're super interested in and you can just sort of cut loose and go super hard on that thing that you're really interested in and you can work way harder than most people and feel really happy and, and energetic about it for, for really long periods of time. You can get a lot of mileage out that out of that and you can do it you can do it even do it live on the internet and these sorts of things. I'm right. actually really well suited to that. I'm I, it, it, it's it's consistent with my strengths, okay? And and I think for a lot of academics, it's not, and that's perfectly fine. So they don't have to do it. But I'll, I'll, this is basically a long, a long kind of um, rambling way of me trying to explain to you that I'm I'm starting to realize um, a lot of these things, and I'm I'm starting to realize that a lot of my strengths kind of point away from academia, and actually, mm. um, a lot of my we. I actually have a lot of weaknesses that don't really do too well in academia, name, name, <laughs> namely like having to do large volumes of like tedious uh, kind of bureaucratic stuff. Like I, I really yeah. find that kind of stuff like increasingly painful. And so it's, it's leading to this like really um, increasingly sharp sort of uh, uh, feeling of, be- of being torn between my different like intellectual uh, projects. Yeah, uh, it, it, it's 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 so cool what you said about um, about torturing your ideas to fit in to the framework of the existing scholarship. Yeah, um, I was teaching this this really really well received piece of early um, early um, early American Republic historical scholarship on uh, on working people in Baltimore, and it's it's a it's a great book. It's a genuinely awesome book. Mm. Um, from I don't know probably like 2008 2009 when I was in grad school it was like the book you know like uh like every seminar that I went into if it had anything even remotely to do with um the early american republic like this book would be on the list um and so I was teaching portions of it to one of my classes it was like a senior seminar um the other day and and these are these are kids who for the most part like they know um american history pretty well they know the conventions of historical scholarship um and and yet when it came time to get to this book they they just didn't care about the conclusions of um of this monograph <laughs> and for for a long time i thought like oh maybe it's just cuz it's the week before spring break or maybe they're just tired or maybe you know this is just the weird alchemy of this classroom but then um when i a couple of my students made some comments and then i began reexamining um the book as a whole and what i realized was that if you if you weren't neck deep in some really minute historiographical conversations, virtually none of these conclusions would mean anything to you, mm-hmm. right? So, like, basically you had to have a, a historic, historiographically grounded misconception in order for uh, for this book to uh, allow you to reconceive hmm. notions around who constitute the early American working class or, or what have you, right? And it's just this reminder that so much of of the the work we do in academia um it's it's we're we're like literally making our ideas less interesting to the world at large in order to genuflect to our own scholarly pasts or the pasts of our disciplines right um 
to the point where we're, we're, we're putting, you know, 15 people ahead of the interests of, you know, uh, literally billions of people in a broader public who could potentially benefit from some of these conclusions. Right. Um, yeah, I've, I've become increasingly frustrated with that. Um, and I, I think, uh, you know, forgive me if this is not the word that, that you would describe uh, for yourself or use for, to describe yourself. Mm-hmm. But like, I, I feel like I'm a bit of an intellectual dilettante, you know, um, when I need to focus on a, a single topic, I can do it. You know, I, I wrote a dissertation and all. Um, but, uh, I, I do genuinely get bored in my area of specialization. And, and so, um, one of the great things about podcasting, about, um, uh, about writing for the public and, and other kinds of activities is that it allows you to kind of em- embrace that, that dilettantism and, and dance around different bodies of scholarship. Right. And, uh, I, I think there's a, there's a, there's a genuine place for that in, in, um, if not in academia, certainly in the world of, of scholarship, if we can make a, a distinction between the two, right? Like, we we need we need folks who are capable of surveying a bunch of weird literatures uh, and a bunch of weird topics and trying to draw conclusions between them just as much if not more than we need people to be extremely well versed in some very minute area. Yeah, so i i share um, I share your your skepticism about um, about whether. Uh, academia can provide a particularly fulfilling life uh, for folks who uh who are interested in uh i don't like you know sort of jumping around between topics and um trying to engage uh like people outside of academia where they are Mm -hmm. yeah totally i get that yeah yeah no and i i could understand for sure why you uh would identify as a dilettante and i think there's nothing wrong with that i definitely know what you mean and i i i I'm sure I'm similar in, in, in that respect. But, you know, honestly, though, I, I also think about it almost as if sometimes I feel like the real dilettantes are the disciplined, respectable academics. Because the, <laughs> no, and you, and you know why? Because the truth is, um, you know, most of their time is spent doing non-intellectual bullshit. You know, like right. if they're disciplined and, and conscientious and productive, then, uh, Sure, they'll go home every night and put in several hours working on their research, you know, maybe before before work in the morning, in the early morning, and then at night also. Um, but it doesn't change the fact that, you know, their their everyday's work is is uh, mostly preoccupied with all kinds of things like meetings, marking, teaching, uh, emailing, paperwork, all kinds right. of things, right? Um, so it's like, the truth is, like, the respectable kind of professional career academic is actually only doing research as a relatively small portion of all of the things that they do. Like they're the ones who are only, sure. they're the ones who are kind of only dabbling in the intellectual life. To be honest, I, my, the, my kind of interest and enthusiasm for blogging and podcasting and all this, all these sorts of new, uh, wide open fora for creative intellectual production. It's actually not the, 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 the drive of the dilettante. I think or at least maybe it currently is by definition because maybe anyone who does intellectual work on the internet is merely a dilettante you might be right <laughs> but i think but i think but i think the dilettantism is actually trying to birth something much larger or i i have i have an ever so slight and hazy vision of something much grander and much larger not that i'm i'm going to do it single-handedly or something like that i don't have any delusions of grandeur but i feel like what i'm so the reason i'm so into it and excited by it and and kind of 
I can't get my mind off it and it's hard to go back to academic work is, is because what I actually see at the end of the tunnel is that creative intellectuals who are able to use these new fora seriously might actually be able to become an all new kind of even more seriously dedicated and focused and specialized and impactful sort of real intellectual where like, right. like basically what I'm getting at in a more concrete sense is what, when I, when I do my blogging and podcasting and stuff like that, when I, like I was telling you before, when I just kind of piss a day away, like writing a blog post and doing nothing else, but just getting super into it. Um, what that actually gives me a sense of, or a taste for, or a vision of is why can I not just do this every single day? Do you know what right. I mean? And in some sense, that's the opposite of dilettantism. What I'm really going for, what I really want is a truly and deeply kind of committed, specialized, focused intellectual life. And so I actually think that in some ways, global capitalism and contemporary work regiments kind of impose dilettantism on everyone as a kind of condition of life today and academics as much as anyone. And I actually think that if there's a path for like a serious new type of intellectual to emerge from, from these sorts of like ashes of the old intellectual, it would be through some way figuring out how to be purely on the internet. <laughs> like that's what I, like that, that's, that's honestly what I, what I can't stop thinking about. And that's why, I mean, I don't have any answers. I don't know how to do it. Um, and I have a lot of, you know, anxiety and uncertainty about how to push, how, how to kind of keep trying to move towards that. Uh, but that's kind of why I raised it because I'm, I'm interested in hearing from people like you and, uh, you know, any, anyone who's thinking about it and these sorts of things for like how you see these coordinates and how to, how to play them. Because I, I don't know, but I, I, all I know is kind of what I, what I want or what I'm trying to work towards. Yeah. And I, I, I'm totally there with you on th- this idea that, um, that, you know, ideally there is, there is a, a sort of new way of being an intellectual at the end of all this. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I do feel like you know we 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 have kind of reached the end of of um, the lifetime of of this mode of scholarly production that kind of begins in the late nineteenth century with uh, the prof- professionalization of the university, um, and uh, you know seems to have ended or is be in the process of ending right now. Um, what exactly it will look like, I don't know. I mean, I, I think I'm I'm. A little less optimistic about uh, about the role of the internet in this, just because I, I kind of see internet culture as, uh, if not intrinsically toxic, it's certainly so st- soaked in, in in toxins that it, yeah. it's kind of hard to see it yeah, as anything else. For sure. But um, I mean, I do think I do think there's something really cool about the fact that you know, like you're a political scientist, I'm a historian um, who also teaches writing. Uh, and you know, we didn't have to do a conference. We didn't have to like put together a proposal. We just decided to have a conversation. Right. Um, you know, and, and your podcast, I think is a great example of this where you're like talking to people from all these different backgrounds, um, both within and outside of academia, uh, in the hopes that it fosters some kind of like broader, um, um, you know, understanding or, or 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 vision of intellectual life. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm 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 opti- I'm optimistic about it. Uh, even if I I don't necessarily think that the internet will will play quite so central a role. Uh, one thing I was curious to ask you about is, uh, would you like to tell us about your book? I saw that you're working on a book. About <laughs> yeah, it's uh, 
Yeah, it's 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 a uh, it's a work very much in progress. I mean, you know, I've been teaching like uh, uh, five classes a semester with a bunch of um, uh, activists and other service obligations on top of that. Oh, so sure. yeah. I haven't I haven't had a whole lot of time for writing uh, in in recent years. But um, yeah, it's basically it's it's a history of um, of like the nineteenth century beard movement. Um, that you know the sort of like period from roughly 1850 to 1900 when seemingly every uh man in the so-called western world decided that it was just like a great idea to grow an enormous beard oh is that right so when you say movement do you mean it had a kind of like conscious kind of uh sense of itself in that way or uh it was it just a fashion yeah no i i actually think that it had uh, a sense of itself um you know, not, not in the same way that we would talk about, you know, like the labor movement or the civil rights movement or something like that. Um, but, you know, people people were writing these very earnest editorials about um, why men should grow beards. Um, you know, there, there's like a, there's a surprising amount of newspaper space in the 19th century that's given over to the virtues of beard wearing. Um, so in, the, in, in that sense, yeah, I mean, people are like strenuously arguing on behalf of this fashion okay. uh, to the point where it, it, it does seem like it has you know, some broad characteristics of a social movement. That's pretty cool. How did you get into that? Uh, it was kind of a indirect trajectory. Um, I don't have a beard. Um, I'm not actually that interested in facial hair in sort of an intrinsic sense. Um, but I was reading this, uh, this street peddler who in the 1840s became inexplicably famous, like just ridiculously famous. I think that he, he had um, more newspaper mentions in uh, the late 1840s than like Charles Dickens and P.T. Barnum combi- combined. Okay. Um, he was, and he, he went by the name of the Razor Strop Man. Um, and he, he sold razor strops and he was a temperance speaker. Um, and so I, I got kind of interested in this guy in, and more particularly in trying to figure out why people liked him so much. And um, and my advisor uh, suggested to me in the course of this research that I should consider the history of grooming, right? That maybe that would help explain why this guy selling a grooming tool became so famous. Hmm. Um, and it, it turned out to be a really fruitful um line of inquiry uh it turns out that it seems like there, there are all these transformations in the labor uh, of of grooming that are going on during this time period hmm. um and with the physical embodied experience of grooming uh during this time period that that seemed to have resulted first in making shaving far more com- uh, excuse me far more uncomfortable uh for a lot of particularly white men in uh, Western Europe and North America, and which ultimately seems to have resulted in them deciding that they wanted to grow beards to like escape the the horror of having to shave themselves every morning. Fascinating, yeah. So, do you think that's going to become like a? Uh, it's a scholarly book, right? But do you think that maybe it will be a like a become like a popular history book? I could see that being like a you know on the on the shelves of my Barnes and Noble. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to publish with a, tra- a trade press. Um, you know, it, it has its foundations in scholarship. But like I said earlier, I mean, I have no, I have no uh, personal or institutional incentive to publish this as a scholarly book. Right. And it seems like like kind of a fun story. Oh, so you, um, you are pitching it as a, a popular book? I am pitching it as a popular book. Oh, cool. Right? And it, it's, 
uh, the way I sort of think about it is as um, an unconventional look on the history of labor and racism in the 19th century. Um, because basically, uh, at the beginning of the 19th century, most barbers are African-American men, at least in, in North America. Um, and, uh, you know, due to a bunch of circumstances that ultimately result in the uh, hardening of white supremacy over the first half of the 19th century, mm. um, a lot of white men become more and more uncomfortable with being shaved by a barber of color. Mm. And so they take up home shaving, um, but it turns out that they're really bad at shaving themselves. So <laughs> it you, they decide that they're going to grow beards instead. And that's like a, a very reductive version of the basic oh, narrative. really? But, that's funny. Yeah, but that's... Yeah, so it's sort of like um, I'm I'm I've been really interested in for for some time in the question of whether racist ideas take on a life of their own, like um, you know whatever the you know it seems kind of clear that oftentimes racist ideas are are um, are devised to serve some kind of like material or political interest at some point in their history, but it also seems clear to me that those ideas become so prevalent that they have consequences that are vastly removed from whatever original purpose they served. And, and the, the fact that like beards result from this history of white supremacy in the United States seems to me a really powerful illustration of the, uh, of the way in which racist ideas take on a life of their own. Wow. That's interesting. I think when it, when you publish your book, you should call it the beard a racist idea that took a life of its own or something like that. It'd be like, it would get like, it would definitely get all the uh, lefty social justice people. And then it would also get like a lot of, uh, you know, attention and marketing from all the right wing people kind of uh, saying this right. is PC gone run amok. No, I'm just absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and when I, when I, when I first published like uh, for a sort of general audience about it, yeah, that was, that was, um, like literally the the comment online, you know, the, uh, oh, it turns out the beards are racist now too. Oh, did you get like, that? Did you get that? Yeah, I t- totally got that. It was That's like funny. I'm not saying that your beard in 2014 or whatever is racist. I'm saying that beards in 1840 were racist. Yeah, so you're kind of saying that your read of the his of the historical phenomena is that beards kind of become fashionable among white people uh because they didn't want black barbers at a certain point like, yeah because they thought that the, like black barbers were going to murder them yeah that's interesting I, on a totally you know this hasn't what i'm going to say has nothing to do with uh the racial point but you know it, it, when you think about it getting um getting a, not just haircut but like your beard trimmed or like your facial hair trimmed with those straight razors that's a pretty crazy thing to let a stranger do to you, you know? <laughs> like it is if, absolutely if you a crazy it, thing you know? to let a stranger do. Like yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny in the in the entire time that I've been doing this research, I've I've never actually gotten shaved with a straight razor like um like i've never gone to a barber and had them do it because after reading all these like weird fantasies about barbers murdering people, i just can't do it. I wow. absolutely cannot do it. Um yep. i don't think i've ever gotten a proper straight razor shave um but i like from someone else but i had a straight razor for a while and i i did it to myself a few times uh which is hard enough and kind of like frightening enough <laughs> uh, yeah yeah but yeah the so so it is interesting when you think about it like i guess it makes sense if uh, you know, if you're in a, a period of time where like racial antagonisms are like coming to the fore, you know, um, like was so was it like, was it, was it a kind of idea of like, I don't want these black people touching me or doing this to me, or is it more like, I'm afraid they're going to shank me? <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's literally like, I'm afraid that they're going to murder me. And, um, 
I mean, a lot of it is it, it seems to be the peculiar power of the Sweeney, Sweeney Todd story, which comes out in the late 1840s. Really? Um, which which kind of catalyzes this. And obviously, Sweeney Todd, it's a British story. Sweeney Todd is is, you know, native born. Um, English, as far as I can tell from reading the original novel, um, but you know, um, uh, as soon as that that story crosses the Atlantic, um, it almost immediately uh, uh, gets the fears of Sweeney Todd get transposed onto black barbers. Even though in the British context, it's more about working class white barbers. Um, yeah, so it's it, it's not even like you know, it, it just seems to be this this moment where you, we have uh, like a confluence of. Um, of intensifying white supremacist views on the one hand, and then the arrival of this story that very vividly illustrates um, what white people think that they're afraid of. Um, yeah, so yeah. like as far as I can tell, Sweeney Todd it just kind of arrives at this moment and makes a lot of white people genuinely believe that they're going to be murdered by their barber. <laughs> That's really fascinating. Yeah. Um, well, when you uh, once it's published, as I'm sure it will, uh, maybe you'll come back on the podcast and you can uh, you can sell it to my like 15 uh, listeners. <laughs> no, yeah. And if 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 I use uh, if I use your title, I guess I owe you like 10 percent royalty. Oh, that would be dope. Actually, I could also <laughs> I could also send you pictures from when I had like a fucking massive, crazy ass, huge kind of like hipster novelty item beard a few <laughs> years ago. Um, nice nice yeah it was like completely you know one of those like clearly i just want to look interesting and crazy and badass i'm gonna like grow out this facial hair in a way that looks so ugly and ridiculous but uh people are gonna (laughs) people are gonna think i'm cool and a badass um yeah i had one of those for like a year it was pretty cool that's that sounds pretty awesome. I mean, may, maybe you could wind up being like the cover art of the book or something. Yo, dude, if you have a if you have like a subsection in there towards the end on like modern like beard movements and race and culture and like like if you have a subsection about how um, like the meaning and significance of big ass beards among like white urban hipster dudes, uh, yep. I could give you a photo. Like I I could legit give you a really good photo that you could probably use as like a a textbook case. <laughs> You, you you have a deal, Justin. Totally, <laughs> that would be awesome. That that'll turn out to be like my one claim to fame uh, in life. Uh, <laughs> that that presumes that more than fifteen people read the book, which is probably uh, you know <laughs> right, right now that 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 seems like a bit of a strong assumption. So no, no, no. That sounds no. It sounds really good. I feel like those types of books are um, people love that shit. Like people love history, like interesting, sophisticated, deep histories of of like one thing you know i feel like that's actually a pretty yeah. that's a pretty like popular kind of model right now for a book and and it makes sense because it's like through you know um who was it like leibniz who said you know you can understand the whole universe through a blade of grass you know like by like zooming in right. by zooming in really close on one thing um yeah yeah you, you get all you get this like story of the whole that's actually kind of parsimonious through this one thing uh, yeah, yeah. So I can definitely see that. It. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Well, I'll let you go. Uh, we've been talking quite some time now, so um, this has been really cool. You're a really good, uh, you're a really good conversational sport. You've clearly done this a few times before, I think. <laughs> well, you you make it easy. You were an excellent interviewer, dude. That's and, awesome. Because uh, I, yeah, I know this this, I, this was yeah. a, a ton of fun, and I, I I like to think that we um we illustrated. Uh, you know your principle of of like uh, free speech absolutism and, and charity uh, in our our civil disagreements here. That's a good point. I, I for sure. I, I certainly feel like uh, you did. I hope you think I did. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. Th- this was this was really uh, interesting, Rich. It was, I just love talking with people. You know, like I didn't. You know, I, I love like turning like a random avatar on social media into 
like someone who I now ever so slightly kind of know and understand a little right, bit. Exactly. Like, you know, in our own little tiny way. Now we're now we're kind of buddies and we had this long conversation. I, I love that. You know, it's a it's a it's a really cool thing, man. Thank you very much. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and I'll, uh, once uh, once Paul and I figure out how to uh, to manage like three audio streams on Impolitik, we'll have to have you on in in, in turn. Oh, for sure. Of course, I'd be happy to. Just uh, yeah, let me know. Stay in touch, man. All right. Sounds good, Justin. All right, Thank see you. Later, Sean.